Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Hi everyone, Ron Spomer back at you with another podcast. This is podcast number five, and we're going to go back in time to 1986 and 1985. I gave you two dates because one was my first sheep hunt. That was 86, and I wrote about it in this article that appeared in the American Hunter magazine in 1995. I started reading it thinking it was just that hunt, but it soon broke into other hunts and I realized it was sort of a collection of sheep hunting and the article was called Sheep Fever. So I think I've heard these stories a zillion times. <laughs> no, you think? <laughs> no, maybe a million times as you told them to friends and family. Yeah. So I'm going to be interested to see what the written form is. Oh, well, we'll see if I told the truth. Is that what you're suggesting? Well, I think you were mostly by yourself, so who knows what the truth is. <laughs> yeah, that's the nice thing about hunting solo. It's yeah. your story. Right. <laughs> the other thing is when we look back at it, what was happening in 1986 or 85? Oh, 86, Chernobyl. Kaboom. Not only Chernobyl went off in Russia and spread nuclear waste everywhere and in radiation, but our uh, Challenger disaster was 86, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, 1986. Actually, uh, it was in the spring, because, I think it was February, because that was the year I started as a flight nurse with an aeromedical service out of Boise. Oh, wow. So a lot of wonderful things happened <laughs> and not so wonderful things. Uh, well, I'm glad you didn't crash along well, with the Challenger. Well, that was a big deal because I remember... My mother's saying, you can't be in a helicopter as the Chernobyl. No, oh, yeah. The- yeah. Can't blame her. I wouldn't. Well, the nice thing about it, you being in the helicopter, if I had gotten in trouble out in the wilderness hunting sheep by myself, if I could have gotten word out, you might have come in and rescued me. <laughs> Could have been. You did some of that, right? And I would have said, what are you doing out here by yourself with no help? Wouldn't have impressed you a bit, would I? No. Well, well, listen, let's talk about sheep hunting here rather than what, what happened in 86. Beyond that, we'll start reading this article and then uh, you can make some snide comments as we no. go along. I would never make a snide comment. <laughs> no, not for at least another 15 seconds. <laughs> sheep Fever by Ron Spomer. 
Sheep fever isn't as common as spring fever, nor as deadly as yellow fever, but it's something to beware. Those who contract it seem incurable. Once they hunt the high lonesome for regal rams, they pine until they can go again and again. The allure is a combination of scenic beauty, unadulterated wildness, exotic adventures, a challenging and impressive quarry, and a return to basic hunting, that elemental contest between predator and prey. There are no luxury lodges, no vehicles to drive you to the game fields. You don't climb tree stands, pour scent lures, set decoys, blow calls. It's just your eyes, lungs, and legs against the sheeps. And theirs are better. I had been hunting for six days, and the only sheep I'd seen were a band of ewes across a major canyon four miles away. That meant the pre-rut rams would be somewhere else, but I couldn't find them. The closest I had come was dry droppings and old beds scratched at the bases of huge fir trees growing at the ends of finger ridges projecting into the main canyon. It was a pattern. Using a sharp contrasty 7x binocular, I began visually scouring such ridges, studying each gray rock and weathered stump trying to put a curl of horn on them. And after an hour or more of looking, I would hike to the point for an intimate look and then glass across to the next ridge. On the third such ridge of the day, one that had looked as empty as the first two through the binocular, I stood beside a big Douglas fir growing above a basketball-sized boulder. A depression had been scraped at its base, and in its center was a circle of dark, moist earth that smelled like a barnyard. A ram had just left, either having seen me across a little side canyon while I was trying to see him, or spooking as I still hunted up to his bed. I couldn't believe I hadn't seen the animal. He had been lying right where I'd been looking. Perhaps he had slipped away before I'd moved my binocular to cover that particular spot. Then I searched more of the ridge and I found literally it was scattered with a freshly abandoned sheep beds. Two, three, six scattered like insults at the bases of the very trees I had glassed. Outdoor writers have for years been repeating the speculation that a bighorn has vision comparable to a man peering through an 8x binocular. And that's based on the fact that hunters have spotted sheep through such binoculars only to see them staring back. This doesn't mean a wild sheep sees everything eight times larger than it really is. It just means that his visual acuity, his ability to discern detail, is much sharper than ours. The important point for hunters is to keep your head down and move cautiously through sheep country. If you can see them, and even if you can't, they've probably already seen you. Once any member of North America's four recognized races of wild sheep, Dahl, Stone, Rocky Mountain Bighorn, and Desert Bighorn, has seen a hunter, it can and will run up and over 2,000-foot peaks faster than a triathlete could run that length on a flat ground. So forget the words chase and race. If you can't sneak within shooting distance of a sheep undetected, you'd better locate fresh game because you'll never catch up with him. This simple reality pretty much prescribes sheep hunting tactics. Glass and stock. A sheep hunter's three most important accessories are a high quality 8x10 binocular, equally good 20-40 or 60 spotting scope, and rugged boots. 
His most important skills are patience, keep looking, and cardiovascular fitness, keep climbing. Oh sure, accurate shooting is required, but it doesn't do anything for you until after you found a sheep and slipped within shooting range. Most hunts start after that long climb or ride into sheep country with a serious sit-down glassing session. You get comfortable with your back against a rock, elbows on your knees to support the binocular, and methodically scour terrain, checking the lower elevation grasslands early, then moving up to the high bedding cliffs and ridges. White dolls are pleasantly easy to spot against dark terrain, but nearly impossible with snow on the ground. Gray to chocolate-colored stone Rocky Mountain bighorns and desert bighorns blend frustratingly well with every background but snow. Although I had trouble spotting those rams less than a half mile away on my first hunt, I picked out a grazing herd at nearly four miles on my second. They were skylined on a sagebrush flat above a desert canyon. Experienced hunters take advantage of skylining by glassing up from valleys and canyons whenever possible. On my first hunt, I had been doing all of my looking from the top down. Well, live and learn. During my first doll hunt, I located three rams roughly eight miles away. Of course, I was using a spotting scope to make that fine. But even at 35x, due to heat shimmer and haze, I couldn't be positive that they were rams. But they projected a certain panache that convinced my guide we ought to take a hike over and look. The biggest turned out to be carrying 39-inch horns. It was well worth the walk. When you're deciding what to carry in your sheep hunting knapsack, decide on good optics even if they're a bit heavy. Glassing is a lot easier than hiking. Understanding the behavioral characteristics of sheep can also save a lot of fruitless climbing. One of the more important is that ewes and rams don't mix much outside of the late November breeding season. Because rams challenge one another year-round to maintain social dominance, the species has evolved to keep ewes and lambs out of the way of those massive horns. This is why experienced sheep hunters keep moving when they find a band of ewes. They know the rams will be elsewhere, living bachelor lives in small groups of their own. If they were allowed to mingle with the ewes and lambs, they might injure them through their constant budding and challenging. Young rams get kicked out of the ewe groups when they're about two or three years old, about the time their horns grow past the maximum size of ewe horns. Sometimes a small collection of these juvenile males will hang around when they really aren't supposed to, which can confuse hunters. Alan Sands and I once wasted a day hunting an area after we had seen three young rams in it. We knew better for the previous day we'd seen a bunch of ewes and lambs in that same area. Might as well move, Al said. This is the ewe area. We were actually on our way out when we spooked three rams. One of them almost made the minimum three-quarter curl, but the other two were plainly three-year-olds. Nevertheless, they were the first males of the species we had seen in two days, and our hope got the better of us. We stuck around that evening and half of the next day before realizing our mistake. Then we moved to a whole new drainage four miles away and almost immediately located the big rams. Never saw you again. Thanks to dramatic pictures and melodramatic writing, many hunters believe that wild sheep love rocky peaks and oxygen tank altitudes. They are up in that country, but would just as soon be down where the grazing is better. 
Baron Rocky Crag's dramatic backgrounds in so many wild sheep paintings are Rocky Mountain goat habitat. Sheep pass through such country and use it for escape cover, but it's not what nourishes them. They're creatures of dry grasslands where they can see trouble coming and beat it to those nearby vertical terrain where their superior leaping skills preserve them. Historically, bighorns were common in western canyons as far east as central South Dakota's White River Badlands. Lewis and Clark saw their first bighorns running along a Missouri River bluff in eastern Montana, far from any mountains. Such places would still have sheep if man would only allow it, but we long ago usurped those easy grazing lands for domestic livestock, forcing the natives to inaccessible peaks and canyons. Now here's an aside, that has really changed a lot in the last 30 years. The Badlands in South Dakota, they reintroduced uh, bighorn sheep, Rocky Mountain bighorns. There used to be a subspecies there called the Audubon bighorn. Mm -hmm. Well, they reintroduced them in the late 60s, I think, and that population took off. I think just last year or the year before, a young man drew a tag just outside of the Badlands National Park, and he shot a ram that was, boy, pretty close to the world's record, just massive. Can, can, I mean, you can hunt them, but the, the tags are probably very rare. Oh, yeah. I mean, Idaho, it's once in a lifetime. You can get a Rocky Mountain bighorn like I did in the in the wilderness, Frank Church Wilderness. But then they have the subspecies called the California bighorn, which is kind of in between a Rocky Mountain bighorn and a desert sheep. I drew that tag, too. A lot of luck would have it. So I pretty much used all my tag luck up right there. You have there. a desert one, but I, I don't think we'd have to sell the ranch. <laughs> yeah, we'd have to we'd have to sell the cars, the ranch, and everything else to go buy a desert sheep tag. I don't think it's in your future. I don't think so either. I asked my wife already. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is resoundingly no. <laughs> no, but the, the point I'm making is that since I wrote this, it's really been an improvement in those lowland, what I would call lowland sheep. Montana's uh where Lewis and Clark saw their first sheep, that country is famous for big rams. There's lots of them in there now. So the trick is to get the domestic sheep out of there because they pass on pneumonia and some other diseases. Mm -hmm. They're not as susceptible because we've been breeding them for ages and ages, whereas the bighorns and any wild sheep just does not have the antibodies to fight off these diseases. And they just die in, in massive numbers. It's really sad. So the, the trick is to isolate the domestic herds from the wild ones, and then they do well. What about in Alaska? Well, you don't have domestic sheep in Alaska. That's what's wonderful up there. It's pretty much the same wilderness it has always been. So doll sheep numbers have never had the big die off the way bighorns have. They just keep, keep doing the standard stuff. Good numbers all the time. I mean, they fluctuate naturally, but they don't have any of that disease issue. Well, let's see. Where are we here? Happily, thanks in part to fundraising efforts by the Foundation for North American Wild Sheep, bighorns have been successfully reintroduced to some isolated badland pockets and low country canyons in many western states, making it possible for hunters to pursue them closer to home without fear of nosebleeds and often without the expense of guided wilderness pack trips. Such a herd lives 2,000 feet above sea level on Rugged Canyon Cliff just 50 miles from my house. That was when I was living in North Idaho. And I think I was referring to that uh, Hell's Canyon herd south of Lewiston. That has produced some really, really big rams, but they had that, that same disease die off several years ago. So it's now become a 
kind of a perennial problem in there, both on the Idaho side and the Oregon side, unfortunately. Hey, just thought of it. What? I haven't gotten my sheep tag. <laughs> That's not a bad idea because even if I just went along as a guide, it would be a sheep hunt. <laughs> you up for it? I don't know. I better start exercising. Yeah. I don't know. You start exercising, you'll probably exercise for the next 20 years while you try to draw that tag. <laughs> but it's worth a try. Hey, that is a thought. Yeah, you'll have to give up your moose tag, though. You can't apply for both both moose and sheep. What are my odds? Your odds, you're about a, oh gosh, kind of like marrying Robert Redford when you were in your 20s. <laughs> well, that, don't even go there. Don't even go there. Okay, back to the story. A friend of mine and his wife each shot, see, here's the woman who shot one, each shot Arizona desert bighorns in low elevation mountains that they'd reached via short hikes from their car camp. I shot my second bighorn on a low-budget hunt to which I drove my four-wheel drive pickup, so it can be done. Regardless of where one hunts sheep, they're always flocking animals, and that can help or hinder the informed hunter. While I was preparing for my first bighorn hunt deep in Idaho's Frank Church River of No Return Wilderness, that's a mouthful, an old-timer who had often hunted the area reminded me repeatedly that I would find my rams in bunches. There's always at least two together, usually three to seven, the man said. So if you see one that doesn't quite make three-quarter curl, keep looking. There'll be more. They stay in the trees up there. It's almost like hunting deer. As soon as you see a legal ram, shoot him. I've hunted more than two weeks before I saw a legal ram up there. Well, the old guy had me convinced. When I finally spotted my first ram, I dutifully searched the area around him and saw a second. This was the bigger of the two and of legal size. So, even though neither ram knew I was in the vicinity, both were grazing peacefully, I quickly shot the biggest. And then a really big one stepped out. <laughs> yeah, I stepped yeah, out of the tree. Oh. That's a story I hear all the time. Yeah, the one that got away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, on this particular time. <laughs> well, it was a big deal. My once-in-a-lifetime tag, you know, and I, I mean, I knew that, they traveled in bunches and there were probably more there, but there were so many trees and I'd spent, I think it was the 13th day I was up there all by myself, 13 days before I saw a ram. So, you know, I just was pretty much convinced the old guy was right. You don't find very many. And when you do, you better shoot the first legal ram you see, because he just hammered that into me every time I visited with him. And he'd taken several. He and his boys had gone up and several friends. And this was back in the day when you could just go buy a tag to hunt sheep. Can you imagine? Well, when you say the bigger one stepped, how bigger was this? Oh, he wasn't that much bigger. Maybe a couple of inches longer, a little more mass on the horns. Two or three years older, maybe. You know, it you know, hardly matters if you're there and you have a tag. You want the biggest one, right? But, yeah, it wasn't anything to cry over. Uh, just one of those d disappointments. But look at the memory I've got now. I've got a story to tell. And wait till the grandkids get a little older and I tell them about it. <laughs> if they give a rip. <laughs> <laughs> now I lost my place, so you better keep talking here. Oh, here we go. my head had been screwed on straight, I would have watched those rams for as long as they were undisturbed, and I'd eventually have seen the biggest of the bunch. So that was a lesson I learned on that one. Another aspect of flocking behavior that can benefit hunters is a sheep's follow-the-leader mentality. 
Most flocks, whether ewes or bachelor rams, accept a leader and follow that boss sheep faithfully. If the head sheep walks through a certain gap in a ridge, you can bet his friends will follow. If he beds down, his flock will soon bed too. Whether he goest, they goest. This is handy knowledge because the flock boss is not always the largest horned ram in the bunch. Thus, hunters can take cues from him to move and intercept all of his followers. During my second bighorn hunt, my partner and I were privileged to watch a band of large rams long enough to notice that their leader was the second biggest of the bunch, being the merest little bit smaller than Mr. Big. That information came in handy later when the flock spooked and ran in a tight bunch with the leader alone in the clear. I was able to pull the trigger confident that the lead sheep was the right ram. Without that prior knowledge, I would not have had a shot. A unique ram behavior that can work to the hunter's advantage is headbutting. Low-intensity headbutting occurs year-round to establish the pecking order. Young rams will bump the more massive horns of an old ram and get an idea of just how hard and heavy those layers of keratin are. Nearly equally matched rams will touch horns as a sort of refresher course to show one another their potential. All of this minor clashing is accompanied by much visual displaying of the horns so that each animal can grasp the size and effect relationship. Horns can weigh as much as 30 pounds. This constant testing prevents a lot of mismatched battles later. When two mature rams collide in an all-out dispute over a handsome ewe, they meet with a combined force of 2,400 foot-pounds. That's like getting shot with a 270 Winchester from 100 yards. To absorb this punishment, each ram's brain is wrapped in a double layer of heavily pneumated, filled with air chambers, skull plates separated by five centimeters of strut bones. That's what they mean by ram tough. Well, they have airbags in their head. <laughs> airbags in their head, yeah. Well, that's roughly what it is, yeah. Now, what a hunter gains from all of this horn knocking is audio direction to his quarry. More than one sportsman has found his ram after hearing the distant whack of horn against horn. Boy, that's true. I've, seen, I've heard that a lot. The sound carries remarkably well and is worth listening for. It can happen at any time of day and consist of a single whack or several. I once watched seven rams huddle like a football team and then clunk horns all at once. That was so cool. They just all backed up a little bit and then just ducked their heads in and went grunk. <laughs> that was neat. According to taxonomists, doll sheep are evolutionarily the oldest race in North America, all others having sprung from it, changing as they migrated south with the desert bighorns reaching the tip of Baja, California. Dolls are the least aggressive. Bighorns, in comparison, fight more frequently and vigorously, which is why they're more apt to have heavily broomed horns. Brooming results when horn tips break during budding. Thus, dolls often have beautifully flared horns that taper to narrow tips. The world record doll horns scored 190 Boone Crockett points and are 49 inches long. Wow. With no brooming. The world record bighorn, I think this is still it, scores 208 Boone and Crockett points, but the horns are only 45 inches long and broomed but massive. So that's probably changed. I mean, this was written in 1995. Yeah, I, I think I think they came up with a new world record ram. That's about like, I want to say 214. I think it came out of Montana. 
there's been so many big rams right there at that record level in the last bunch of years with all these introductions and things. And what's interesting is when you introduce sheep to a new area or reintroduce them into an area where they used to be, they seem to explode in health. Because I think that the ground and the plants have not been browsed and grazed for so long. So they're more nutritious. I think so. I think it's just the nutrition. The genetics are pretty much always there. But man, they just, and, and that's a classic case in Idaho where I hunted that first sheep in the wilderness, that Rocky Mountain bighorn. I think one of the reasons I got the tag was I went to fish and game as soon as I was eligible after moving into the state. And I said, look, I just want to hunt a sheep. I understand it's like winning the Irish sweepstakes or the lottery. Where's a unit where I can go hunt a sheep? Draw a tag, in other words. And they said, well, here's one of our higher draw success areas. You can get, uh, I think it was one in five Mm -hmm. chances for drawing a tag, which still aren't really good. But by golly, I drew it. And he told me there aren't a lot of people putting in for this tag for two main reasons. It's extreme remote wilderness. You're going to have to hike in 15 to 20 miles. And the other reason is that there aren't really any big rams because they have always been there. It's a native herd, decades and decades of browsing and grazing in this habitat and lots of cougar predation and all the wilderness stuff. But it will be a real wilderness experience. You just won't, don't have the chance of getting these massive rams that grow out in the better low ground, like south of Lewiston. But what an experience. I mean, it was oh, a wilderness. Yeah. I mean, for what, how long were you out there? 13, 14 days? Yeah, 13 days before I saw that ram and shot him. And then, of course, you had to get him all packed up and out of there. Um, so, yeah, it was a 14, 15 day adventure the whole Did, way. From hearing the story many times, didn't you have to hike out to get new supplies? Yeah, I was in. See, what I had done was told a friend, well, you're elk hunting. And he came from out of state and I told him I'd pick him up. Well, I drew this tag. So I told him "Eh, I might be a little bit late, but uh, sheep season will be going for a couple of weeks before you get here. And so sure enough, I was still hunting sheep when I, I knew he was flying in up in Spokane. So I knew I had to hike out and go pick him up. I couldn't just leave him stranded. So, yeah, I walked out. I remember it was 17 miles out. This was uh, in the middle of the Frank Church Wilderness, and I I remember the ridge was called Harrington Ridge, so I suspect a creek underneath it was Harrington Creek. I know sweat lakes were up there because I used to fish in those, backpack in. But the whole thing was backpack. At any rate, I hiked out, went and picked him up at the airport, got fresh supplies of food, gave him a backpack, and he went in with me thinking he might get an elk in there because the season had just opened. And then the very next morning, I'd been out of there for maybe two or three days. Next morning, I got up and he was so bone tired, not having done any <clears throat> hunting and hiking yet. So he slept in. I just told him I'd go down the ridgeways and he could find me. <laughs> and I got down there and there was my ram, shot him. And that's what woke him up. And Brad comes out just saying, oh, man, I missed it. <laughs> my first and only chance to see a bighorn sheep hunt. I missed it. <laughs> he slept through it. He slept through it. Okay, let's finish it. Oh, finish it. I'll have to figure out where the heck I was. In addition to being broomed, bighorns are fatter and more tightly curled and doll and stone horns. That's why the latter are also known as thin horns. Standing about three feet at the shoulder and weighing 200 to 250 pounds, rams do not require magnum medicine. A 120 to 150 grain slug launched at 3,000 to 3,300 feet per second will do nicely. Additional velocity is sometimes handy for long shots, but unnecessary for killing power. 
A maxim in sheep hunting is that when the climbing gets tough, the tough get a lighter rifle. (laughs) Or wish they had. Boy, that's true. Every pound counts when you're carrying it long, steep distances. Sheep have inspired such delightfully flyweight tools as the Ultralight Arms Model 20 and the Rifles Inc. Strata Stainless at four and three quarter pounds. That is a light rifle. Now, that's a rifle ink. Yeah. Uh, Lex Webernick. Oh, yeah. Right. Down in Texas, he makes some great rifles. And the Ultralight Arms one, that's Mel Forbes in Virginia or West Virginia. Golly, those are a couple of great rifles. Anyway, we'll keep reading because I imagine I'm going to talk about them more here. Topped with a scope, stuffed with cartridges, and hung with a sling, these superbly accurate and surprisingly mild shooting rifles weigh less than five and a quarter pounds. Jack O'Connor made the 270 Winchester the sheep cartridge, but equally good are the 25 6 Remington, 280 Remington, 284 Winchester, and even the old 30 6 which will print within an inch of the 270 at 400 yards. The 284 Winchester is the ballistic twin of the more popular 280 Remington, but in a shorter case that will function in a short action length chamber, which saves a few ounces. That's the name of the game here, just shaving ounces. The hardest part of modern sheep hunting seems to be getting one's hand on a permit. Hmm. Desert End, Rocky Mountain, Bighorn tags are meted out via lottery in 11 states and two provinces. Some are for residents only, many are one per lifetime. Mexico sells about 40 Desert Bighorn tags each year, but the asking price would buy a new four-wheel drive truck. And that's still the case. I think the last I heard they were like $65,000. You can get a pretty nice truck for that. No, you can't. No, you can't. There are more than that now. <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> oh, take me home. Ah, stone sheep. Oh, man, are they expensive. You must hire a guide in British Columbia, where most of them are. I think all of them are. Or a small corner of South Yukon. That leaves dolls as the most reasonable to pursue, even though they're the farthest north. Shop around. Oh, gosh, get this. Shop around and you can find a guided hunt for 4000 to 10000 <laughs> No. What are they now? 20000 to 30000 They might even be a little higher than that. I don't think you can find one for twenty anymore. Wow. Yeah. Inflation, man. No, that's not inexpensive, no kidding, but a doll sheep hunt is like a pilgrimage. You work your way via bush plane, horse train, boot leather to the sacred mountain, living on rarefied air and snow melt. Boy, that's true. You sleep with one ear open for the snuffling of a grizzly and you ride alertly through the alders. You warm yourself around campfires and sleep on the ground, sometimes in a tent, sometimes under the stars. You hike and hunt and wander God's country, North America, the way it was, the way it will never be again. That's what you pay for. The sheep is gravy. Yeah, and that's still true. Um, I mean, some of the the greatest outdoor experiences of my life were sheep hunting up in that wilderness. The Alaska Range, the Brooks Range, the Chugach. I mean, just whatever mountain range I'm in up there, I think is absolutely the most beautiful country I've ever seen in my life until I go to the next one. <laughs> so do you think you have a sheep hunt in you again? You know, there's there's some hitches in my get along these days, but I think so. I mean, I would jump at the opportunity. I don't know that I would invest, uh, you know, the grandkids education or something like that, but I'd be tempted. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should look into that, actually. And I think maybe I'll try for a sheep tag. Think I could navigate those mountains? 
I think you could, hon. Um, I don't know if we want to do a backpack hunt, but we could, you know, in like in the Owyhees or any area where you can drive within a few miles of the yeah. sheep, you could do that. You're you're tough. So yeah, let's do that. We're gonna work toward a sheep. Let's go for next year or the year after. We'll probably have to plan for a long distance hunt here, meaning many, many, many years of applying to get a tag. We might be, we might need a place where you can wheel in. No wilderness areas. We'll need wheels. Okay. Well, what this reminds me of, this was, you did this in 1986. Mm -hmm. And since then, equipment's changed. Rifles, long, more long distance shooting. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And what's, what, what, from your perspective, is the biggest difference from 1986 hunting to now? Uh, other than the cost, hmm, I will suspect that most sheep hunters will try for super long range stuff because everybody's into this long range shooting. I don't really think it's necessary. In fact, I think it's probably a bad idea just because of the weight of the rifles. Not that you couldn't take a, a lightweight rifle and set it up for farther shooting. I used to shoot to 400 yards. I think the longest sheep I ever took was 350 maybe. No, it was 400, a stone sheep at 400 yards. But I was using a super lightweight rifle. That was that Kifaru rifle. And that thing didn't weigh five pounds. And I had a two to seven loophole scope on it. Two to seven by 33, I think it was. 400 yards away at seven X, one shot right through the shoulders. And no range finders. Oh, and no, the guide had a range finder, but I didn't have any sort of ballistic calculators or anything like that. I just held above his withers a little bit. But 500, 600 yard shots with a normal rifle, that's easily doable if you know your stuff and you've got an accurate rifle. You don't need a 10 pound long range rifle the way most kids think they need these days. You know, it's a great game. And I know some incredible shooters, men and women alike, who can put a bullet on target out to a thousand yards pretty consistently every time, et cetera, et cetera. But you really don't have to because it's mountain country where you can stalk. You get behind a rock, you get behind a ridge. And to me, that's the fun of the hunt is spotting the rams like the one I saw at like eight miles away and then spending the day getting over there and then finishing that stock. I mean, it's so exciting when, you know, he's just right there. If I can get a little bit closer, yeah, you could drop him from a greater distance, but then the hunt's over. So I I think that's it, but there are better cartridges out there as far as long range precision now. There's no doubt about that, but shoot the, you know, the old 270 and the different seven millimeters will more than do the job for you. I think probably bullets, there'd be the way to, Mm -hmm. to describe what's really improved. The, the longer, sleeker, higher ballistics coefficient bullets really help, w- not so much with drop at distance, but wind deflection. Oh, that, that's right, because you're in the mountains. Yeah, isn't that hard always to just guesstimate the wind speed? And yeah, you can have a wind meter and all, and th- those work pretty well. But then that's more paraphernalia you have to pack around. And when you're having to carry your camp and all your food for a week or two up in the mountains, you don't need another three or four ounces of anything. So, yeah, but... Sheep hunting is always going to be sheep hunting. I don't care what gear you use. A lot of guys take them with bows. Oh, wow. Oh, gosh, yeah. There are some great bow hunters up there. Then those guys know how to stalk sheep, and they know the thrill of it, too, obviously. But even even bow hunters now are shooting at longer ranges than we ever did in the yeah, old days. Yeah, but they're not shooting at 400 yards. So. No, but for a bow, 100 yards is the equivalent of going probably six. 800 yards I mean, with the right. Just think about a bow hunter sneaking up on a sheep. That yeah. takes. Yeah, that. Yeah. 
It takes that takes taking your boots off and going in your socks is what it does. Most guys will do that. So I, I do have another question that's changed a lot since 1986 when you were out there by yourself. Mm-hmm. Now we can take satellite phones. We can have a spot to case you get you get oh, in trouble. Yeah. And so. Um, because I was a flight nurse for so long and actually rescued guys like you in, in the wilderness, um, what what do you think? I mean, does that take away from the experience because you're always connected, or and, and it probably does, except when you get hurt. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. There's something special about being out there all by yourself and knowing that it's you against the wilderness, or you know, you've got to make your own way. I can remember on that first hunt, 17 miles back from where I parked, after a couple of nights, I got to thinking, yeah, you know, you're your, what, early 30s to mid 30s and you're invincible and all this. But out there all by yourself, you start thinking, wait a minute, all I'd have to do is break a leg or not even that, maybe just even twist my ankle or my knee. How am I going to get out of here? 17 miles in the mountains? Whew. So that sobered me up quite a bit. And after that, I did a lot less solo wilderness hunting um you know and if you're a family man you've got a wife and kids you kind of owe it to them to be a little bit sensible and that's the stage i was coming up on in life at the time and so i started going like my second hunt i had alan along and um it made a a lot of difference but there is something really wonderful and special about being by yourself in the wilderness that isolated Without connection. Yeah, with no way to reach anybody. Because you fully realize, probably for the first time in your life, just how dependent you are on yourself. You can't just take chances and figure somebody's going to save your butt. Well, when you're out there, even if you had a satellite phone and you can tell somebody where you are, I mean, you're still out there by yourself and, you know, you... It's not like if you get hurt on in a city, somebody's going to come rescue right. you. I mean, so to me, it makes sense to be connected because it's it's fine if nothing happens. But if you break your leg, you're going to want to have somebody come get you. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, from your career as life flight, you know about that stuff. Um, but once again, we are individuals and we have freedom yet in this country. And, and a big part of that is having the having the freedom to decide to do something stupid. <laughs> but it is just, I, I can't explain it. It's hard to articulate, but it's this incredible feeling you get by yourself in the wilderness where you feel competent. You know how to survive short of a broken leg or something really serious. But you've got your basic training in you know, Boy Scouts or emergency medicine or whatever you got, but you feel competent. And when you're out there doing it, it just does something to your your spirit and your sense of self you you feel like i really am a competent daniel boone kind of a person and it buoys your spirit and it just makes you feel that much more competent in all aspects of your life and i think it also sobers you up and makes you more responsible to both yourself and everyone else outside of that experience you come back from something of that and you realize how easily you could die and you really start appreciating all aspects of your life and respecting other people and what they're up against. Make yeah. any sense? It, it makes total sense, but um, not but. You know, I, I think you appreciate that experience. I'm not sure that's going to 
be repeated in in your lifetime. I think you're telling me I best not get my butt out there all by myself in the wilderness for another week at a time. Well, mm-hmm. you can do it. I'm just, I mean, actually, you can do it, but I think it would be um, nice to have a spot or whatever they sell now or a satellite phone. That yeah. just makes more sense. To right. Me. We didn't have options back in those days, but we do definitely have options now, and I would certainly recommend that to everyone. But the same time i can i can understand some buddy wanting to just get out there all by himself an independent man independent man i don't know john wayne cowboys that whole idea is kind of cool and sheep hunting oh, is well, a good place to the, do it the colter um, john colter oh yeah. my gosh so yeah that's what you may want to say a little bit about that and then we well john colter was the man who discovered yellowstone but he was a trapper with a lewis and clark expedition he went up and then they came back he ran into a couple of trappers fur buyers going up the yellowstone i mean this was 1806 and young john colter i forgot how old he was at the time when he wasn't very old he decides to go with these two guys and once he gets Far up on the Yellowstone, kind of up in Bighorn Country or somewhere. Oh, where was he? No. He went almost all like Livingston, Montana, and then up the Yellowstone. So pretty close to the southern border of Yellowstone. And he hiked across the Absaroka Mountains to the east, got in down where Cody is now. So he went around Yellowstone. Now he's on the east side, goes to the Wind River Mountains on the southeast corner, crosses the winds and gets into Jackson Hole and sees the Tetons for the first time. Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Goes around, I think, into where Driggs, Idaho is now, and then back into Yellowstone uh, over the plateau, and he spent Christmas at Yellowstone Lake by a geyser boiling fish in one of the hot springs. So he came out of there telling everybody about it, and of course they didn't believe him, it was a tall tale, and they called it Coulter's Hell. But that is a story that's worth uh, talking about sometime on another podcast because that was probably the most incredible solo adventure in the history of... Of course, we don't know what Native Americans have done for how many thousands of years, but from a historical perspective of what we know, I can't imagine anybody having made a grander adventure by himself. And he did this in winter. Unbelievable, John Coulter. But that's not sheep hunting. Let's save it for another time. Hey, this has gone on long enough, I think. Let's give folks a chance to take a breather and (laughs) catch a drink here. Ron Spomer checking out uh, from this podcast. And I invite you to join us on ronspomeroutdoors.com website and go to YouTube and find a bunch of stuff there that we do on product reviews and such. That's uh, Ron Spomer Outdoors as well. And you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. And as you usual we like to uh, advise everybody to hunt honest and shoot straight Head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. 
go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.